Shana Tovah, everyone. Rabbi Rothschild and I already started our dialogue, and I realized all of you were in the room. So, <laughs> so how's everyone doing? So uh, by a popular demand, because uh, last year, as I'm sure many of you remember, uh, Rabbi Rothschild and myself, we did a, uh, a dialogue, and it was about the unexpected uh, journeys and our personal stories of where we have both come from. Uh, the rabbi and I share a, a common uh, like a, a common beginning of sorts. We both come from the Orthodox world. Uh, we're not there any longer, but our sentimentalities, our relationships with religious texts, uh, religion and attitudes and areas in such a large way are deeply influenced by those relationships and experiences uh, early on in our lives. And that being the kind of Jews that we are is very much a conscious choice that we've made to separate from one thing and go to another. And I thought, uh, first, the response last year was so overwhelmingly positive from the conversation. And Rabbi Rothschild is uh, hes a wonderful rabbi, a great thinker, and a provocative personality. I thought it would be great if we reconvened. So here we are. And uh, I was driving to a wedding on the, um, we were talking on the phone in the summer, trying to figure out a topic of what would be of interest. And I was fighting through uh, traffic on the Belt Parkway, uh, trying to get to this way. <laughs> and then I realized about a month ago, when I started thinking about what I was going to say, because the topic is my favorite Jewish idea. And then when I started thinking about what we were actually, what I had to choose, I kind of felt like a kid being brought by my father to the ice cream store. And I'm only allowed to choose one scoop. It doesn't give you two scoops. It's one scoop you have to choose. And the choice, and so this has undergone over the past three or four weeks that every once in a while I turn my attention to this, I have moved in and moved out at least two dozen ideas. And it's been very, very challenging because uh, always another one comes to replace it because it seems fresher and newer. And, and it's a testament, I think, to... Uh, much like the rabbi spoke yesterday, how um, Judaism is a, a beautiful combination of both uh, action and conviction, of ideas and commandments. And uh, that, in many respects, is one of the great struggles in Jewish life today. Um, if I can just take a tangent for a moment, it would be there is an entire Jewish world that is occupied with action, Jewish action, Meaning from the moment that you get up in the morning, the things that you do are regulated by Jewish life. Um, I go pray, I make blessings over my food, and then there is a much larger Jewish world that is just filled with conviction. The things I feel. Right? I may not act um, definitively in a regulated manner Jewishly all the time, but I am deeply convicted as a Jew. So um, I can start or you could start, but I want you to start. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so is this working? Is it working well? OK. I mean, first off, I just want to say these microphones are very podcast-esque. <laughs> and I say that as someone who's never done a podcast before. But 
seeing but the microphones, do, yeah. I felt like, I hope this is going to be a podcast. <laughs> um, so if anybody's recording this, please continue to do so. You know what, next so. year we'll do it. I never thought of actually podcasting these conversations. Yeah. Sermons are podcasted and everything, right. but that's a good idea. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyhow, it's very, just, just, just compliment to the, to the staff on the microphones. Um, so I, 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 I similarly had a struggle in selecting a Jewish idea. I think one of the things I love about Judaism is because it has so many ideas. And it is, you cannot hear, okay. That is, okay. Is, am I speaking into this? This is a very Jewish question. Or am I speaking into this? <laughs> speak into this. <laughs> okay. That's what I was just doing. Um, Hold on. There you go. Okay. Over here. Okay. Is that better? Yes? Okay, good. All right. I, I have no doubt that you will let me know. If not, I don't have to worry about that. So... I find Judaism to be extremely intellectually rich. And there are ideas piled upon ideas. And I think the rabbi and I are just going to talk about how we don't have an idea. We're going to do some like negative theology here. Um, because we couldn't find, we were, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were paralyzed and we couldn't select one, we couldn't commit to one idea. I actually felt so insecure at some point. Because yeah. I said to myself, how can I have an idea to choose? It, it was frustrating, actually, because <clears throat> it's almost like if someone would come to you and say, um, tell me about your favorite song, or sing your favorite song, and it's like, I can't remember. And I see this personally um, when I do funerals, and people want to stand up and talk and eulogize the person they love, and more than one mourner, um, confesses to me, I can't remember anything. Like, the memories escape me, and I had that kind of paralyzing moment. So, instead of going on and on about what we can't speak about, um, <laughs> I, I will make a confession, which is that I was at a Shabbat dinner last Friday. What day is today? Wednesday, Wednesday. so just this past Wednesday. Friday. Tuesday. Tuesday, you see? Um, so just this past Friday, and I was still undecided. I think I narrowed it down to like three ideas. And I'm at a Shabbat dinner Friday night, and this dinner was in honor of a good friend of mine's fiance's conversion. She had just converted that week. And so he brought together close friends who were in some way involved in the conversion. We're all together, it's a beautiful Shabbat dinner. And I pipe up and say, in honor of Molly, who's just converted, I want to propose a prompt. And we can go around the room. Nobody should feel obligated to uh, respond to this prompt. But if you are moved to do so, please do so. And the prompt is, what is your favorite Jewish idea? <laughs> <laughs> and I really wanted to know what people would say. And I thought, maybe there's a better idea that I hadn't thought of. Or maybe when I hear somebody expressing an idea, I'll, I'll see how it sounds. I'll hear how it sounds. I wasn't very impressed, by the way. Uh, once we went around the table, there was no idea that I felt trumped the ideas that I'd come up with. So that made me feel a little bit more assured. But ironically, when it came my turn, 
I radically changed my idea on the spot. And I realized that the thing I love most about Judaism perhaps is actually not an idea. The thing I love most about Judaism is the people. The thing I love most about Judaism, I thought to myself, is this. Sitting among fellow Jews and one newly minted Jew and enjoying a Shabbat dinner and laughing together, talking about everything under the sun. And then I asked myself, well, what is it that I like so much about Jews? What I love about Judaism is the Jews that make up Judaism. What do I love so much about Jews? And that was a hard question to answer. I can observe the fact but to understand the fact, for that one needs a lot of therapy, or a wise rabbi to consult with. It was hard for me to answer that question on the spot, and I've been mulling it over in my head, so maybe you guys can help me figure that out today. But I have, I have one theory that I want to sort of uh, experiment on you guys. Everything in my life is an experimentation. My theory is that there's something about Jewish people, not every single Jew fits this description, but a large enough proportion of Jews such that for me, I can make this sort of simplistic conclusion and talk about all Jews sort of stereotypically. I'm comfortable with that if you're comfortable with that. That I find that so many Jews that I encounter are restless. You might say, well, that's a bad thing, restlessness. They just need a better meditation app or something like that. And that might be true. There might be some negative aspects of restlessness. But for me personally, I find that restlessness really, really powerful. I find that that restlessness leads Jewish people to accomplish great things. It leads Jewish people to push the boundaries. It leads Jewish people to never, never be complacent. It accounts for the fact that Jews, though only 0.2% of world population, make up over 22% of Nobel laureates historically. It accounts for the fact that any industry you look at, you don't have to search hard to find a Jewish name up at the top. It really doesn't matter which industry we're, we're discussing. I'm never surprised by the extremely Jewish-sounding names that I encounter at the very top of any industry. I think historically, I think just in terms of the last century and a half or so, I think about the figures who probably revolutionized politics, science, and psychology the most were all Jews. I think about Karl Marx. It doesn't matter if you have sort of tried to renege your Judaism. You're still Jewish. I think about Karl Marx. I think about Sigmund Freud. And I think about Albert Einstein. Pioneers who revolutionized how we think about modern science, how we think about modern psychology, how we think about modern politics. And there have been many 
attempts to explain this phenomenon of remarkable Jewish success. Is it IQ? I remember there was a study that came out, I think about 10 years ago, tell me if you remember this, by two University of Chicago professors. And they said, they said we concede that Jews have higher IQs, <coughs> but it's not because Jews are, are, are like better, it's that they're, if anything, worse, and it's connected to the fact that they have all these diseases like Tay-Sachs. Kind of, the study kind of made no sense. It was heavily criticized. It didn't account for all the Sephardim out there who don't have Tay-Sachs, aren't prone to getting Tay-Sachs. And it's just weird and bizarre to connect like lactose intolerance and Tay-Sachs with high IQs, but whatever. And diabetes. And diabetes. But, but the impulse is understandable. The impulse being, how do we unpack this? How do we make sense of this? And I guess I choose to adopt a more mystical perspective. And my mystical perspective is that Jews are consumed by the infinite. The infinite, the infinite. The deep appreciation that truth is boundless, that there's more to discover, that there's more to accomplish, that as good as it gets, it can get better, that as much as has been achieved, more can be achieved. And it's on some level sad, right? If I was the, Jew, the Jewish people's therapist, I would say relax, probably, right? Go to the Bahamas, chill. You've accomplished enough. What are you trying to prove and who are you trying to prove it to, right? Your mother? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> But again, I, I, I could psychoanalyze it. I can I could try to understand it scientifically. It's just about IQ. I could try to understand it historically. Jews were persecuted for so long, so they were forced to work harder. Jews were literate for various historical reasons. I could try to explain it evolutionarily. But I choose not to. I don't think any one of those explanations will actually account for the observation that I have made over my many years of my life. And, and, and I think of it somewhat more mystically. And I think of the Kabbalistic concept of Ein Sof, of, of there, there being no end. That is, the, that is the conception of God, that God is infinite. There's no end. And I spoke about this yesterday in my sermon a little bit. I touched on this, that we are created in the image of God, imitatio Dei is the Latin, if anybody is a Latin stickler. We are created in God's image, and we are meant to, in some way, model God. And I think that this is how Jews have done that historically, is we've pursued the image of God, which is that God is infinite. And therefore, we constantly pursue more and more and more and more excellence and more excellence. And I think, I can't say for sure, but I think that's what I find so beautiful about Jewish people. That's what I connect to most in Jewish people. It's that non-complacency. Beautiful. I actually, um, I had a lot of different ideas in my head and um, there's the, the acapella group that we have. Um, so we have two choirs in the shul. One choir is a traditional high choral kind of choir. And, the other choir we had, we introduced about five, six years ago, and it's an eight-piece a cappella group. It's almost like pitch perfect meets Shabbat morning, and 
It was a whole plan of reimagining Shabbat morning, making the service shorter, um, injecting a different soundtrack into the morning, and it's uh, it's been awesome. So one of the um, one of the tunes that we had commissioned them to do last year uh, was based upon uh, a famous Talmudic story that I love very much, and it actually articulates my idea. And it was uh, put to the tune of a beautiful song by Mumford and Sons. Well, most of you know Mumford and Sons, and if you don't, ask your children or grandchildren. They know. So um, it's called The Cave, is the song. And the story in the Talmud is a story about during the Roman oppression and war against <clears throat> the Jews, late Second Temple period, just before its destruction, we're talking about 2,000 years ago, uh, they had uh, forbidden uh, a number of Jewish practices, Brit Milah, and also teaching Torah in public. <clears throat> a number of rabbis persisted in doing it. They were betrayed, handed over to the Romans, and they ran away into the, to the mountains, to a cave, because there was a bounty put on their head. And the story goes, Shimon Bar Yochai, there was a story that goes that they lived there, uh, this rabbi and his son. They lived there for years. Um, and they subsisted on, there was a little stream of water, a river outside the cave. There was a tree uh, that had carob, buxer on it. Of course, when I heard the story as a kid, because uh, back then, whenever they, the only time of the year they served carob was on, was on Tubishvat. And it was like, it was, it was like cardboard. It was so dried out, I just, this is what they ate? <laughs> How could they stay in the cave that long? Later on, years, years later, when I was in Israel in the army, we had went by a carob tree and we plucked it off and it was soft and it was delicious. I'm like, okay, now I understand. <laughs> now they lived on this. So, um, and then the story goes that eventually a voice came from heaven, they should go out and they go out of the cave after being there for years, father and son. And, the, and this whole rabbinic legend develops that they were in Chavrutah, they studied with each other going over mystical texts that became the foundation of the Kabbalah and all these other things. And they walk outside and they see that there are people harvesting and planting and washing clothes, and changing the oil in their car and doing, and they go, oh my God, look how they're wasting their life. <laughs> like these meaningless, trivial things. And so the story goes that wherever they looked, that things burst into flames. But anyway, so then a voice of heaven goes and says, go back to the cave. And as they're about to go back into the cave, the Talmud records that, um, that I think it was the son said to his father, he said, I'm not sure about that though, I may have been the father. He said, the two of us are enough for the world. We don't need anybody else. We don't need the world. Let them waste their time and their lives. We'll go back into the cave. And so they're told, in fact, they have to go back into the cave. And the heavenly voice says, I didn't bring you out of the cave for you to destroy the world. And I think one of the ideas of the story is, is first of all, this beautiful, rich, rabbinic, and Jewish idea about us not being islands, that we have a kind of a collective destiny to each other of not separating or setting or cutting ourselves off from community, which is also a really important idea. And the sense that um, 
two is not enough for the world. You need more. What did Fromm say in The Art of Loving? He said, a couple, two, um, a couple, two people who are cut off from the world and don't have friends, all they have each other, he said it's a faliadu. He said it's a joke. He goes, that is not a testament to the strength of their relationship. It's a reflection actually about how scared and weak it is. And of course, Fromm had studied to be a rabbi. He knew this story. That Shneinu is not maspikim biyama. Two is not enough for the world. And so very much driven with your idea, this idea about us being together, about Jews not that it's not enough for just me and you or just two people to be there. And then my mind went to another idea. And the other idea is... This is what a rabbi does. He'll tell you all the ideas. And then actually the idea I wanted to talk about, which I think is is kind of similar to what you said, and that is um, the story of Moses being at the burning bush and then this age-old debate. And years ago I spoke about this. This age-old debate about what the bush actually represents. So what does the bush represent? What do you think? I know the conservative position on that question. I'm not a conservative rabbi. Ah. Uh. <laughs> um, but I am. So, no, I'm actually no, not. Uh, <laughs> it's just a good, it was a good retort because yeah. I just had to use it. Um, so I'm sorry to, to, this is like a major interjection. So you finish, then I'll tell you the, the, what the, I, I, I don't know. I, I never thought about it. Okay. Yeah. Anybody want to venture, Gander? The lowliest thing represents the highest. And remember in the story, because you've seen the movie, Moses goes to the bush, and the bush, it is on fire, but it is not consumed. Okay? So the lowliest is, anyone else? Put your rabbi hats on. Come on, you're telling me you don't have an idea about what it means? Okay, rabbi? I think one understanding could be that the bush represents us, people. And that though we can be aflame with devotion and spirituality, we shouldn't be consumed. Mm. Cahill says that, it's beautiful. You ever read his book, Gift to the Jews? Thomas Cahill, in his book, The Gift to the Jews, mm. quotes that interpretation beautifully. Um, I think it represents the Jews. At the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, in, part, in, this, in this poem called Azinu, it refers to the shochni sesneh, of the dwellers of the bush. And I think it's us, the Jews, meaning that we are always held at the fire, but we are never consumed. But that fire makes us who we are. We are rich and diverse and filled with ideas. We are proactive and active and engaged and changing and forming and pushing and driving. And if we weren't held to the fire, we would not be Jews. The reason we are what we are, that restlessness that you talked about, is because we've been and are at the fire. Israel is what it is because it's surrounded by hundreds of millions of people who want to destroy it. Honestly, if Israel was Switzerland, it wouldn't be what it is today. I am absolutely convinced of that. 
So that's my idea. Uh, the rabbi and I were talking previously about a, a very important Jewish scholar named Moshe Halbertal. And he's a professor at Hebrew University, and he's a professor at NYU Law School. Um, how he's a professor at both, that is interesting in its own right. Um, but he's, he's a very well-known figure in Israel, at the very least, um, and very well-known at NYU Law School. And, uh, and I, I took all his classes at NYU Law. I was doing my PhD at NYU, and I was able to get into his classes through some sort of you know, technicality that I, that I orchestrated, and I took all his classes. And, and one thing I'll just say about the way he teaches is he loves the refrain, by the way. By the way. So he would talk and talk and talk, and then he'd go, by the way, because it would remind him of something else. And then as he's talking about the by the way, he'd go, by the way. And I would have to keep track of like, how many by the ways in we were before we'd get back to the original topic. Sometimes it would be like five or six by the ways in. So one could get annoyed by that. I actually loved it because I learned so much from all the by the ways. I would say I probably learned more from the by the ways than I did from anything else. So I have a little by the way here. My by the way is, is you know, what you mentioned about the snab, about the bush and being consumed or not being consumed, and I mentioned the conservative perspective on that. I found this really fascinating when I was giving a class at Park Avenue City Guide years ago on modern Jewish denominations. I was trying to understand the history of the different, I was basically trying to figure out which denomination I wanted to be a part of, and then concluded none of them. Um, <laughs> But, but I had to learn about them, I had to learn about their evolutions, I had to learn about their histories, I had to learn about their philosophies. It was a really interesting project, and it was a great class, if I may, if I may say so myself. Um, and one of the things I learned when I was on that exploration, by the way, if you don't know if you noticed, I just did like a by the way. You just did by, by the way. way. I don't know if you, and I just did a by the way about the by the way about the way about the way. Anyhow, um, some of us are just a little more smooth with our by the ways. Um, so one of the things I learned was that that first of all, one thing I knew without having read anything about this was if you walk into JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary on 122nd Street and Broadway, you will see a picture of a bush on fire. And you will see the words in Hebrew that the bush was not consumed. And that is the official conservative Jewish movement's emblem. It's a bush on fire. And the words in Hebrew, the bush was not consumed. The, the commentary on that that I learned was about, it was, it was referring to like the construction of this building. I don't remember exactly when it went up, maybe in the 60s or something, and this was chosen as this emblem for, to, be the, to be symbolic of the conservative Judaism and, and, and the thought process behind it and the reasoning behind it. And the reasoning behind it was that they were gonna put this picture up on the front door, like right above the front door of this massive, beautiful building, JTS, to announce to any person who's going to walk through those front doors, that behind these doors, although we are going to engage in critical analysis, critical scholarship, that is what differentiates us from Orthodox Judaism, is that we are not going to shy away from, say, biblical criticism or, or historical understanding of the Talmud or what have you. The bush is not going to be consumed. The bush is going to remain. In other okay. words, that no matter how much you disassemble it, it's still safe. Right. And I remember turning to my class at Park Avenue Synagogue and saying, so, has the bush been consumed? Mm. And that's an interesting question, and this is you know, for another conversation, about conservative Judaism in its heyday held on to so much more of the tradition, and it's lost a lot more of the tradition. I wouldn't say the bush is consumed by any means, but it's getting more and more consumed. 
And so my question to my class was, are the two really compatible? Can you really do that kind of critical analysis and critical thinking at a, at a, at a seminary like this one and profess to hold on to the tradition completely intact? Not so sure. Not so sure. Something's got to go. You can't you know, teach a class on feminism and then not call a woman up to the bima. Something's got to give. I'm not sure that means the bush is being consumed. That might be the wrong metaphor. Maybe the bush is just more ablaze. Well, it's a challenge right. of it's a challenge of of modernity. It's the challenge of um, the epoch that we live in is an epoch of personal autonomy, and Judaism is a religion of collective, um, of subsuming yourself to a collective responsibility. I mean, in our generation and time, we consider we're raised to believe that what makes me happy should be the most important thing. That the pursuit or the, or, the, or the paths that I choose for myself, those things, they make me happy, and that's an argument for me to be able to do or not do something. And the religious argument is that there is a value greater than yourself, and you see this played out, play this out in the orthodox world, or I don't like using that word per se, like the, the very traditional Jewish world that agree to subsuming their personal happiness in pursuit of a greater responsibility, and then the rest of the Jewish world that sees personal autonomy. And unless you're prepared to make an argument that um, you're not entitled to personal autonomy, which is a very difficult argument to make, it's really challenging. And I suspect also that in the Orthodox world, they're, I know they're facing challenges with personal autonomy. They're facing challenges with, uh, with women's rights. Uh, they're facing personal autonomy choices with sexual choice rights. And that has to do with that people are not ashamed about coming out. And almost everyone in the Orthodox world has a brother or a sister or a cousin or uncle or aunt who has come out. And so this is no longer something that's shameful and ultimately Sexual choice is an argument about autonomy. I have the right to choose to be with who I want to be with. So I think that's also that. It, I think that's all kind of baked in on that. Yeah, the, and that's why the more very traditional rabbinic seminaries are not offering classes on feminist readings of the Bible, right? Or, or critical readings of the Bible. Right. trying to understand where the Bible came from. That they're still making the argument that it all came from Mount Sinai in one moment. And while we know this is not even up for debate anymore, we know that it was a process. Next time you go to Israel and you go to the Israel Museum, ask to see the Aleppo Codex. The Aleppo, like the, like the town in Syria, the Aleppo Codex and you'll have your answer. And yet they persist in teaching that. And why do they persist in teaching it? Because the fear. Right, and I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want the by the way to hijack the top, you know, the, our theme, um, but by the way. we can, but, but, <laughs> um, but just, just, yeah. So uh, we're at the moment here where we have about 15 minutes left and we had promised that this was gonna be uh, interactive, um, so, we can continue talking. Clearly, that's not an issue for us. Um, but, 
but I wanted to give an opportunity if people wanted to share either their, fa their favorite Jewish idea or a favorite Jewish question or something like that um, for us to talk in here. So, any, anyone? You have a concern about the future. So, So the question was concerns about Israel, the rising influence of the ultra-Orthodox that are advocating social policies that are anti-feminist and uh, against the overwhelming majority of the country in lots of lifestyle ways. And I would say to you that Israel may very well end up in a third round of elections precisely because of that issue, because of the blowback of the non-ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel about their unwillingness now to form a coalition government with them? You want to? I, that's a big question, probably not one we can, we can tackle. Um, and as, as, you know, as less experienced as I am, and I, I don't know if I can answer it so such a pithy way, um, like your, your rabbi just did, um, but I'll, I'll give you a snapshot of my, of my thoughts, really, and I'll try to make it as, as quick as possible. I, I don't think the phenomenon you raise is, 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 is exclusive to Israel. Um, I, don't, I don't know the extent of it in, in Canada, but I imagine, especially in Montreal, it's probably a, um, um, a, 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 there's a tension there too, and certainly in America, um, there's a large ultra-Orthodox population, and this question is a good one, and I'm of two minds about it, and the question is, on the one hand, do you allow these communities to preserve their distinctiveness and live their lives and let them be? Or do you make certain demands on them? In Israel, that demand, or the one that would, that would probably be most obvious, would be the demand of serving in the army, right? But there are other demands. Um, a demand that I'm interested in, and I've thought a lot about, and am publishing a piece in Columbia Law Review like next week about this, is the education question, which is do you demand that Hasidic, let's just say Hasidic for a second, schools provide basic secular education. And the reality is, is that the schools do not. And the same reality is that is, 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 is in Israel. And there's a whole lot of questions that that, that, question, that, that that general phenomenon implicates, including what education is for, right? But just to throw a few things out there, one concern is that the Hasidic community essentially cripples its children who become adults who don't have all that many skills and then become a burden on society. So theoretically, society has an interest here. And that's certainly the case in Israel, where you have even more ultra-Orthodox communities and Jews in those communities. And it's a greater, po it's a greater percent of the, of the general population. And it also, it also forces them to stay in the community. Right. Because their socioeconomic choices are. Right. Right, so there's the, the personal autonomy cost that the rabbi was reflecting on earlier, right? That if, if a Hasidic young man or woman grows up and wants to, do, wants to become a medical physician, 
um, because I have a PhD, I like to distinguish between you know, doc the kinds of doctors. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the New Yorker cartoon where the hostess is on the phone and she goes, now is this for a real doctor? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I like to refer to you know, physicians as physicians, not just doctors. Um, we're doctors of the soul. You know? um, but but I, I, I think it's a, it's a tough question, and I think the other, the other side of it is that I also believe that communities like the Hasidic community that are so insulated and idiosyncratic um, do have the right to their distinctiveness and on some level do make Judaism more interesting and do make the world more interesting and they do stand for something and it ha so happens to be that the thing that they stand for is radical anti-secularism and for some odd reason they consider the study of mathematics to be secular. As odd as that is, that's, that's how they perceive it and I've looked into that quite extensively. So I think, I think there's a tension there and I think that tension is, is going on in Israel as well. Ultimately where I come out on, on that question is that we need to regulate those communities, we need to enforce certain basic education, and we probably need to, to, to demand that, that those young men go, go into, and women go into the army, just like anybody else. For the record, it should also be said that in the States, particularly in the States, that there are fundamentalist Christian um, communities, large ones, evangelical communities, school districts, that have and want to have control over the public school um, curriculum where they don't treat evolution, uh, teach evolution and other uh, what we would call core, core um, public school curriculum things, that essential things that people have to know. Uh, anyone else? I don't think they're controlling. I think they're exercising their democratic rights to, as a polity. But if they are being Once again, they're advocating the needs of their community. And it's up to the country to manage what the expectations are of them. If you're going to take public funds, then these are the expectations. They're not the enemy of the state. They're part of the state. They're against elements of the state, but they're active in the politics of the state. And so it's confusing. I get it. But I, I, I don't know the Listen, we don't know the future. It'll somehow, they'll negotiate things as they go along. And there'll be failures and successes, I suspect, along the way. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that on the one hand, again, um, kind of echoing what the rabbi said, they are exercising their democratic right. 
and there still is the lingering question of, well, they can do so and the state can still have certain demands of them. Education is a good one, I think. Serving the army is a good one, I think. The, 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 the distinction between Israel and America, I think, is not so much one of kind, but one of degree. I don't think things are so uh, neat and simple that in America, maybe they are in Canada. Canada seems to do things a lot better than America, generally speaking. Um, but I don't think the divide between church and state, maybe, it, maybe it's, you know, that, that is the case in theory. I don't think that is the case in practice. And, and, and to your point about having a stronghold uh, politically, that comes down to numbers, right? Hasidim, let's just, let's just talk about the Hasidim. It's one version of ultra-orthodoxy. Let's just talk about them for a second. In Israel, have what we call a block vote. And they have what we call a block vote in America as well, and in particular in New York. So they wield a lot of power. And with that power, they can uh, negotiate certain sort of packages for themselves, which might include looking the other way when it comes to certain things. And so that is the political system. I think the deeper question is, do we, want to, do we want to mandate that those who grow up in these communities are receiving basic secular education such that they can be more civically minded, for example? In Israel, that might, might mean going to the army, so that maybe you're not as cut off from the rest of society such that maybe you will care a little bit more about the similar concerns that the rest of society has. So we need to actually think bigger picture, think deeper, and start a lot earlier in, in what kinds of demands we're going to have on these communities. But one, in terms of their vote, that's, that's democracy. Uh, one more, and then we have to end. Jacob? Israel is a Jewish state, and the pop rising populations of non-Jews, and that how it will affect its Jewish character? A lot of softballs today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and a lot of Israel. Yeah, uh, interesting. I'm gonna, I, you know, I, I don't have strong thoughts on that, um, to be honest. I wish I had uh, uh, better developed thoughts that I can answer you honestly. Uh, I think there is a real tension in Israel between it being both Pure, fully democratic and Jewish at the same time. Um, at the same time, I'll just point out that you know, every country, to my knowledge, in the West uh, has a notion of nationalism. And we, we, can, we can debate that. Um, but there's something called citizenship. And citizenship is not a trivial thing. People, people very much, you know, when you have it, maybe you take it for granted. But if you don't have it and you want it, it's not an easy thing to, to get. It's a real privilege to get. Um, it's a commodity. Um, you know, Hannah Arendt, a great uh, uh, early 20th century Jewish philosopher, um, made the argument that there's no such thing as human rights. There's only, there's only such a thing as citizenship. The only thing you can really bank on is citizenship to your country. And that's the value of citizenship, and that's the value of nationalism. And she said this in the wake of the Holocaust, as a Jew who fled the Nazis. She was pro-nationalism. So we could have a raging debate about the benefits and um, the disadvantages of nationalism, no question. But I think just to back up a second and to, and to maybe take our, take, our, take our hands off of Israel's neck, not to say that's what you were doing, but some do that. 
and to say, oh, you're so Jewish, and Judaism is a religion, and that's certainly a problem of say, church and state, and that's not democratic, and that's not liberal. I don't think, I think that's, I think that's too harsh, and I don't think that's accurate. I think one understanding of, Jew, of, of, of being Jewish, and this is going back to our, our original comments, is not necessarily about, about religion. It's not necessarily about, about subscribing to certain ideas. Uh, Judaism is a culture. Judaism is a people. Uh, a friend of mine recently got the, 20, the, the, the 23 Me, the DNA test, and the results came back 99.7% Ashkenaz, right? At a DNA level. So if America can say, if you're gonna be, you know, to be a citizen you have to have been American, I don't think it's so problematic for Israel to say, to be Israeli you have to be Jewish, or at least that you are automatically an Israeli if you're Jewish, and then if not, you have to go through some kind of process to get there. So then that get, that's sort of a similar answer, uh, comment that I made before that I don't think we're dealing with a difference in kind as much as a difference in degree. And then we can debate, right, what, like what privileges should be granted to those who are Jewish versus not Jewish, right? And how, and how uh, democratic and liberal is that, right, on the fringes. But I think as a notion, I think it's, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with any country saying that we have citizenship. And I'll, uh, I'll wrap up with this. I want to say that, as a general rule, um, most demographic projections end up being wrong. So 15, 20 years ago, the big demographic panic was, was that in 15 or 20 years, that the Palestinian population and the Arab-Israeli population was going to explode and outstrip uh, the Israeli birth rate. And it didn't take into account two things. One was, that the Israeli birth rate would remain, in fact, grow to be the highest amongst the OECD countries. And the other thing it didn't take into account was that after Oslo, that there was a serious movement undertaken to get Palestinians to buy homes, which means they had to take mortgages, which means they had to go out and work, which means they had smaller families. So on some level, we only know what we know. <laughs> and, dem and demographics never plays into that. Thank you, but, but everyone. Can I, can, I, can, I just, can I just conclude with one quick thought? And can by I ask you, can I ask you, can I, by the way, and can, I ask you, can I ask you a rude question? How old are you? 19. I think the question coming from you, a 19-year-old, is emblematic of a sentiment, at least pretty dominant one, among younger Jews in North America. And I think, and, I, and, and thank you for asking the question, because you're bringing it to the fore. And I think it behooves us all to really think critically about the question you just raised, and think deeply about it, and think about where our youth are at today, and whether they're onto something, and, and what responses we really have to those har hard questions. Okay. Next year. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. 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 Okay.